Hey, welcome back to Thursday Night Bible Study with Heritage of the Saints Ministry. I'm Apostle Glow, and we're continuing our journey through scripture to discover, explore, and really find out what God has wrapped deliverance with and in. Peeling back the package of salvation, we discover that deliverance is embedded in Christ's completed work. This week, we will address and really try to bring together how soul injuries can be inhibiting for our deliverance. But there's nothing too hard for our God. We also bring forth some Christian devotionals and how Christian devotionals can help shape and mold your mind and help mold you for Christian living through the written inspirations, the direction, the correction, motivation, and courage that God has given other Christians living this life. Amen. Three cases of deliverance that we will explore in this first segment include the deliverance from the oppressive Egyptians who marginalized and enslaved the Hebrew people. God saw, God heard their cries and raised up a deliverer named Moses. He would lead the people to the Red Sea. And God himself would part the Red Sea to deliver his people. Our second example is in Judges 6, where we meet the man Gideon, the innovator. Threshing wheat in a wine press, God sends an angel to speak with Gideon. He would raise Gideon up, as well as choose 300 choice men to deliver Israel from the Midianites and the Amalekites, who had been essentially financially oppressing Israel and creating famine amongst the people. In our last example, we meet our favorite guy, Jesus Christ himself, who had come not to be served, but to serve the people. He delivers us from the penalty of sin through his crucifixion on the cross. He sets the captives free. He heals all those who are sick and oppressed by sickness and disease. He even comes to handle the business of misappropriation of status and power in the church. So stick with us. This first 45 minute segment is fully packed. Take notes, it's time to do some work. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we come and we just thank you for your presence here now with each one of us individually and in this meeting corporately. Lord, for you said in your word, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. Well, thank you for being with us, Lord. We surrender all to you now, Lord, as we study deliverance and put in the position and Lord God, in the posture of deliverance, Lord, anoint our ears to hear and our hearts to be fertile ground for the word that Apostle Glow and Elder Castor will bring forth this evening. Father, just anoint them. I thank you, Father, for just letting us hear what you have to say, Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name I pray that this meeting is productive. Lord God, the word is effective, Lord God. Oh, Father, it changes us, Lord God. It uproots old thinking and old ways. We submit them to your way of thinking and doing things, your kingdom. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name, and we thank you and give you all the glory, all the honor and praise. Amen. Well, first, I would like to say thank you to everyone who is on the line this evening. We are entering our second session for Heritage of the Saints Ministry Thursday Night Bible Study, where we are studying and exploring and seeking to understand through our biblical text, deliverance. So this week, Our topic for deliverance is the posture and position of deliverance. But before we get there, I just want to go back a little bit so that we can briefly 
touch on some of the things that we touched on in our first session. So as we continue to deep dive into the subject of deliverance with biblical knowledge, understanding, insight, and revelation, we should first look at why deliverance is important. Deliverance is important because it changes the course of your life. Deliverance in different areas of our life delivers us to areas of promotion. These areas of promotion are not always associated or attached to monetary compensation, but nevertheless, deliverance can change the trajectory of your family and your own life. Deliverance is needed because your legacy is depending on you. Your community, your coworkers and church are depending on you. And God is relying on you because he has a will, he has a plan and a purpose that you are capable of accomplishing because he chose you to get it done. Deliverance can be necessitated for different reasons and it'll be different for each individual. Nevertheless, know that the things that have gotten you wrapped up and bound, chosen and not chosen, born into and not born into, they cannot hold you. And it's true, some bindings and chains you did not choose, but they chose you. So as we go across the scriptures, deliverance is illustrated and evidenced with healings, being delivered from sickness and disease, being rescued from physical danger, as the Israelites often found themselves at war with the neighboring communities and enemies who did not serve their God. Deliverance is rescue from personal enemies, political oppression, as was the case in Egypt when the Hebrews were delivered up and out of Egypt and into the wilderness and then later in entering the promised land. And it's also deliverance from sin, from darkness, from being veiled in your mind and unenlightened. Deliverance is wrapped around our core three life principles as put forth by Charles Stanley. Across season one, episodes one through 12, we broke down the three principles as outlined by Charles Stanley. Number one, intimacy with God is his highest priority and determines the impact of our lives. Principle two, obey God and leave all the consequences to him in which we will then be subscribing to the mind of Christ. Surrendering ourselves to the will, way, and purpose of God and submitting, being in submission to doing it God's way. So what is deliverance? Deliverance is a tool in the hand of God and is used to assist you in the transformation process through sanctification which is to be worked out according to Philippians 2 and 12. Now, from my personal devotional reading, um, which helps me to continue to shape my mind and apply scripture to my life for Christian living, I have one devotional in particular um, that I began sometime late last year um, and I'm still rolling into the completion of it as it is a 365-day devotion. Devotionals 
are written by other Christians um, and inspired by the anointing of the Holy Ghost resting on them. And it creates a synergistic spiritual bond um, between you and the author as they're sharing how the word imparted in their life supply direction, correction, motivation, courage, encouragement, edification, and in some instances, comfort. Coming through a direct encounter with God, either prayerfully through his written word or through a spoken word or through the fellowship with other Christians, um, it's helpful because people have been subject to challenges and obstacles that God delivered them to, through, or from. Whether we recognize it or not, Job was delivered to the challenge with parameters that the enemy could not violate. So reread Job 1, because it is God that asks, have you considered my servant Job? Now in the devotional that I'm currently sitting in, which is um, written by Pastor Christine Kane, who God calls the showdown under, she has an entry and the topic of the entry is soul, S-O-U-L, survivor. From it, I gather, Christianity far transcends external behavior modification. It's about an internal heart transformation. Our minds, wills, and emotions have to be submitted to the Holy Spirit so that he can begin to change us from the inside out. In the realm of our souls, the inner man, how we think, choose, feel, decide, and act, we need to exercise discipline. Issues that dominate our thoughts and feelings must be faced and brought into line with the word of God so that we are no, not in danger of sabotaging our destinies. She further goes on to state how soul wounding is essentially like the Achilles heel. And the Achilles, which is a ligament in our ankles, if so much as a shopping cart is rolled up on the back of your ankle, that tender spot is likely to buckle even the strongest, tallest, mightiest man. So an injury to the Achilles can take down the largest opponent or the largest competitor, the biggest athlete, the most well-trained athlete, an injury to that area can take the athlete out of the race. As I read about soul wounding and soul weaknesses equivocated to the Achilles heel, I instantly thought the ACL injury that sports athletes, professional and amateur have either experienced and been able to recuperate from, or for some it's been career ending. And so as I proceed to progress down that path, just to develop more understanding on it, because to be honest, I thought the ACL was the Achilles injury. However, Similar to the Achilles, the ACL is actually located in the knee. So on mayoclinic.org, it says that at ACL, which is your anterior cruciate ligament, involves the injury of tough ropes of tissue that connect the thigh bone to the shin bone at the knee. This is one of the key ligaments that helps stabilize the knee joint. Symptoms include sudden pain, inflammation, and instability of the affected joint. 
So I want you guys to jot down pain, inflammation, and instability. Pain, inflammation, and instability of the affected joint. Now, nevertheless, when you have an injury at a joint, typically it's going to also limit movement. You won't have the proper extend and flex that the healthy knee would have. It further goes on to say that the severity of your symptoms will depend on how damaged the ligament is. Ligament disruption most often affects the knee and ankle, but, and here's a but, it can also occur in the hip, shoulder, or any joint in the body. So any places on our body where we have the extension, the flexure, and the movement of bone, where there are ligaments at a connection, those two can actually experience what's called a ligament disruption. Now, prevention recommended to reduce the risk of an ACL injury include, and I want you guys to write down now, instruction and feedback. Reducing the risk of ACL injury are instruction and feedback, but not just from any source, from sports medicine, physician, physical therapist, athletic trainer, or other specialists in sports medicine recommended. That means you shouldn't just take the counsel from anyone, but you wanna take that counsel for someone who specializes in, in that area of expertise. They further recommend for prevention of an ACL injury, exercises to strengthen the core. So let's jot down exercises to strengthen the core. And you would think that would be an out of place recommendation considering that we're talking about the knee. But they recommend strengthening your core, including the hips, the pelvis, the lower abdomen with the goal of training athletes to avoid movements of the knee inward during a squat. So the ACL injury can occur with improper posture while doing another exercise. The core, strengthening your core, we're talking about your torso, the muscles, your trapezius, the muscles that come across the front, your, your rectus abdominis, strengthening your core can affect your posture for doing an exercise that most athletes do to actually build their quads, which are squats. Another recommendation is strengthening leg muscles particularly the hamstring exercises to ensure overall balance in leg muscle strength and training to improve technique when performing pivoting and cutting movements. So your legs have to be properly exercised and strengthened for one strength, but to also improve your ability and technique for sudden stops and change of direction movements. So, so far we should have jotted down sudden pain, inflammation and instability. We should also have jotted down instruction feedback. I also want you to take note of exercise and training because we're gonna work this all together with where we're going.
Now through the um the joint institute their website where they are a, a team of orthopedic specialists so they specialize in bones they give the disadvantage of non-surgical treatments because not everyone wants to go under the knife and that's understandably um reasonable with some people not liking anesthesia or the adverse effects of anesthesia, which most times surgery requires. Here it states that the long-term outcome for patients who are treated non-surgically varies. Those who return to unrestricted activity are likely to experience some knee instability. Pain may be associated with the physical therapy regimen, in the absence of an intact ACL, where we have um, a complete tear, even when no other injury is present, the paths of cartilage that cushion the bones that meet at the knee joint have a higher risk of injury. So if we elect not to do the surgery, and this is just all for shaping our discussion, we run the risk of further damaging the knee. Associated bones, the cartilage in the knee, which is cushioning and giving fluidity to movement. If a tear forms now in one or both of these cartilage pads, pain and swelling may occur and more importantly, a damaged cartilage pad increases a patient's risk of developing osteoarthritis of the knee later in life. So when is ACL surgery necessary? The choice to have surgery is used usually based on the patient's lifestyle. In athletes and other people of any age who wish to continue doing physical demanding activity, an ACL reconstruction surgery is often needed. If the injury is not too severe, some patients who do not need to perform intense athletics or physical labor may be able to go without surgery and still lead an active, healthy lifestyle. Many people with torn ACLs who receive conservative non-surgical treatments are able to swim, jog, and use most equipment found at the gym or at the health club. Just like the ACL, the inner man, the mind, our hearts can suffer injury. We can choose to forego surgery and risk, like an ACL injury, we can risk pain, inflammation. We can risk injuring neighboring parts. we can risk pain spreading to other parts of us or emanating and permeating our lives. But just like an ACL injury, we can take preventative measures for us, our pre preventative measure to um, what I would say lessen the blow of such injuries are wrapping yourself in the word of God, building a prayer life, having a devotional life, having some sort of, of fellowship community of like-minded believers, followers of Christ that can nourish you in these times of maybe dryness 
or in a season of maybe famine. Just like there are nutritional requirements for the athlete, as athletes of Christ, we also too have nutritional requirements. Otherwise, we see many of Christians fainting. Our nutritional diet as Christ athletes allows us to endure seasons of dryness and famine. The necessity of spiritual nourishment and nutrition is necessary for running your race, enduring, persevering, and overcoming the challenges, obstacles, and trials we will face in this life while in earth. In the grand panoramic picture of walking with God, deliverance trains us in faith. Now, there were key words we pulled from the ACL research, which were train and exercise. And then we'll see later some of the other words come into play. But deliverance trains us in faith and exercises our trust in God. I'll say that again. Deliverance trains us in faith because that is the vehicle which will move us and also the substance which touches God's essence and moves him, hallelujah, and it exercises our trust in God. This is the core work for walking in fear of the Lord and the shadow of the Almighty. There is only one physician able to perform soul surgery. He is a specialist, he has never lost a patient, and he has no malpractice lawsuits against him. He is skillful and most exact with his scalpel and his name is Jehovah Rapha. Exactly what is his scalpel? Hebrews 4.12 tells us that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the word of God, which does expressly and is perfectly delineated in Hebrews 4.12 and Ephesians 6.17 the B part of that verse. And these two scriptures have to hold hands for understanding. So over the course of the next week, I want you guys to jot down Hebrews 4 and Ephesians 6 as part of your study chapters as we continue to move through our work on deliverance. Now let's get to work. To reiterate focus points of last week's Bible study, and we're going to further develop deliverance. Deliverance is a tool in the hand of God used to assist you in the transformation process through sanctification, which is to be worked out according to Philippians 2 verse 12. It is the training and the exercise against instability. One of the symptoms and reoccurring occurrences with the ACL injury that we open with is that it causes instability in the knee when those ropes of tissue connecting your thigh to your shin bone are torn. Instability. The same is such for the soul of man. Without sanctification, we are unstable in all of our ways. And like any surgery, whether it's the ACL surgery or it's the soul of man that needs surgery, the scalpel is used for cutting and separating. Most times it is used to cut away damaged, dead, 
necrotic tissue that has lost its function or poses a threat to neighboring tissues, organs, or systems that could disable, hinder, or cease normal functioning. Similarly, deliverance's process is to separate. If you'll be patient with God and allow him to do this work, you'll find more in the journey of deliverance than arriving at the destination. When I hear and replay the testimonies of my own and other people that I've been able to talk with who have been also through the ringer of life, there's about three key statements I hear of Christians who have prevailing faith and God brought me out of, God brought me through, God made the way. Those three. Now for the Hebrews in the book of Exodus, God saw the Hebrews oppressed. They were being harshly worked, enslaved, marginalized, and subject to racism. Now, to be a Christian and remain racist is lip service to the Lord. You'll be like a noisy, clanging symbol to him because you have not love. And that's 1 Corinthians 13 and 1. Because as we will see, racism is put to bed with God. We see it concealed with Abraham who came from his father and grandfather being idolaters. We see it again with Rahab, the Queen of Sheba, Nineveh, Naaman, and the Gentiles being grafted in through the crucifixion of Christ. To be a Christian and remain racist is lip service. There's no disputing that. God would separate the Hebrews from among all the rest of the people of the world, choosing them to be his chosen people. When faced with either turning back and returning to captivity or freedom, the hope of freedom, trusting God, parted the way through the Red Sea, delivering the Hebrews while drowning Pharaoh of Egypt and those that attempted to pursue them. So your deliverance will get you out and drown anyone who's trying to come after you. The picking of the Hebrews entailed also entering the wilderness and deserts because they were following God who led them by a cloud at day and a pillar of fire at night. Their God, my God, our God, provided manna from heaven daily, daily bread, and water from a rock that followed them in the wilderness. This exercise of trust and training of faith is a daily training. And it will eventually, at the appointed time and season, deliver the children of Israel to the promised land, just as God said he would do, though not everyone entered. So deliverance, when we're talking about deliverance and God is the one leading you, deliverance separates you. You are part of God's family. We meet Gideon in Judges 6. During a time in which the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, they were given into the hand of Midian for seven years and were oppressed. Whenever Israel had sown their seed, because they're living in a time in which they are agriculturalists, and so they work the land, 
their farmers, whenever they had sown their seed, the Midianites would come along with the Amalekites, who are the descendants of giants, and would damage the crops of the Israelites, leaving them with no sustenance, no sheep, ox, or donkey, devastating the land and greatly impoverishing Israel. And so they cried out to the Lord. The Lord heard them and sent a prophet. So if we all could grab our Bibles and turn to Judges 6, we're going to look at verses 8 through 14. And again, we're a Bible page turning Bible study. I just think it does something when you're turning pages and putting your eyes on the scripture. I'll be reading out of the Amplified. And so beginning at verse eight, it says, actually I'll back up to verse seven, six, six, six. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. Now it came about when they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites and he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery and I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to and obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezerite. And his son Gideon was beating wheat in the wine press instead of threshing floor to hide it and save it from the Midianites. Now, I began by telling you how they were destroying their crops, but Gideon had found a way not only to ensure that he had crop available for storage to be able to um, sustain and carry them, he was an innovator. He, instead of threshing the wheat in the, uh, at the threshing floor, as was conventional for that time, Gideon was innovative enough to be able to thresh inside of a wine press. He was doing something that normally you would have to do, um, if I'm correct, at the top of a hill or a mountain because the wind would separate the, um, I believe it's called the chafe from the wheat. And the angel of the Lord, I'm sorry, let me go back. Um, his son Gideon was beating wheat in the wine press instead of threshing floor to hide it and save it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O brave man. But Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wondrous works, which our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in this strength of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? An angel of the Lord was sent to the faithful man. The first thing Gideon was instructed to do following his encounter was build an altar to God, but he was also to destroy the altars of Baal in his father's house. So in his own father's house, his father had a pagan altar. After Gideon had completed this task, 
Now he was to deliver Israel. So a choice army of 300 was brought together by an unconventional selection process of God so that none may boast that their rescue was through the power of themselves. In the following verses, after the erection of an altar to God and the destruction of the altars of Baal, of the people who gathered and headed to the water with Gideon, those that were too afraid and trembling were to turn back. 27,000 men of, of war turned back. 27,000 turned back. Nevertheless, Gideon proceeded to follow the instruction of the Lord. Those that remained when taken down to the water, Gideon was to observe and notate who lapped water with their tongues like a dog, for they would be unfit for Gideon's army. After weeding out these men, there were 300 who kneeled and put hand to mouth to drink the water who became the chosen for Gideon's army. They went the same night to the Midian camp below in the valley because the Lord said he had given the Midianites into their hand. So we have two instances already explained of deliverance. We have the deliverance of the Hebrews and now we have deliverance of Gideon and Israel. We have deliverance um, that separates you. So we, we know deliverance is almost like a separation selection type process for God. Um, now in Jesus's coming, which we see in the gospels and throughout the New Testament, but it's really all throughout our scriptures. But if we're going to just hone in right now, we'll focus on the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, as well as our New Testament scriptures. Jesus came to serve, not to be served, and to deliver us from the penalty of sin, which he himself would accomplish. So the deliverance, he didn't leave the deliverance from the penalty of sin up to a anyone else he was going to be the man for the job only God could accomplish this he would deliver himself to the cross of Calvary but before his cross Jesus went on tour his official ministry was like going on tour Jesus would de deliver people from the law, oppressive religion, because there were money changers at the temple, um, men of the religious sect who misappropriated power. There was the religiousity of the Pharisee scribes and Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, and it was their ignorance and lack of understanding and improper application of the word God, which was hindering not just themselves, but the community. John 6.63 says that the word of God is spirit and life. But before Jesus got going, he first separated 12 from the Jewish community, his disciples. So Jesus's 12 disciples. So earlier I asked my dad if he could name the disciples. He named four. 
I had another four, but I also told him, I was like, that's exactly the problem. We don't even know all 12 disciples' names. Nevertheless, some of the ones I missed, I'm like, how can I miss them? Like, I love that, that disciple. But here are Jesus's 12 disciples. Most were fishermen, but he also pulled, pulled Luke, who was a physician, a physician, oh my goodness, a physician. He grabbed Matthew, whose real name is Levi. Matthew, who was a tax collector. And then some of the other ones, their professions are unknown. But the ones I do know, I do know that Matthew was a tax collector and Luke is a physician. Now, if you look here on our screen for the names of the disciples, we don't see Luke's name here, which means more homework to do. I want you guys to search the gospels for Luke because he is listed in this list. nevertheless the ones we do know and some that are lesser known there are things that we can glean from their life from their encounter as they walked with Jesus so his disciples Peter James and John Zebedee brothers Andrew Peter's brother, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, and they always typically de delineate who the father is, um, especially when they're trying, there's people with the same name. Thaddeus, and it says Judas, son of James. Simon the Zealot and Judas. Iscariot, which he's been labeled the betrayer. Because Jesus would send them out and charge them with carrying the gospel, intense, intimate time and teaching was required. Jesus would ask questions and be questioned by his disciples so that they would have a fullness of understanding. What Jesus looks for in his selection are those that are teachable, trainable, and touchable. The Pharisee and the scribes had the we already know type of mentality. They could not be taught, nor were they willing to be trained by Jesus and thought they were untouchable. And there's a dual meaning to that. Untouchable in the sense of you can't touch me, you're not clean, but also untouchable in the um, mannerism in which they thought they could get away with anything. But we know that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing and that there is nothing hidden from him. And this is why uh, Jesus, when he came to the woman caught in the act of adultery, why those men were to drop their stones. We'll eventually get around to examining that portion of scripture, hopefully um, sometime during this session. But nevertheless, Jesus, each time, while these men were trying to incite stoning of this woman, Jesus gave them two opportunities to walk away because Jesus is all knowing he knew what their sins were and if I recall the scripture correctly he stooped down in the dirt and wrote twice we just don't know what Jesus was writing and I don't know really if it was any of our business but whatever it is that he wrote in that dirt what he wrote in the dust the same substance from which we are created, whatever he wrote, put enough fear in God in those men to make them drop their stones and walk away. For they were 
unjustly trying to appropriate the law for the persecution of a woman. But back to where we are. The Pharisees, scribes, and Sanhedrin, because of their status, thought they were untouchable. You couldn't quite possibly expect them to get their robes dirty in Samaria, Asia, or Italy. In Matthew 23, verses 27 through 28, Jesus himself calls them whitewashed tombs. Clean on the outside, dirty, impure, and unclean on the inside. In 2 Timothy 3 and 5, the New Living Translation synonymously delineates that um, in regards to them having a form of godliness, most of us know that part of the scripture, but I like how New Living Translation puts it because it says they will act religious, but they will reject, denying the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Today, the culmination of pharisaical activity is what we term church hurt. It has become a giant in many people's lives, keeping them out of the knowledge and intimacy with God, as well as fellowship with one another, and these people are going at life thinking they're alone. Through my own battles of protecting my mind, because your tongue is connected to the thoughts and has power to propel your life in the direction of your words, the Lord spoke and said to me that the mind is a swindle zone. Now, if you know what swindle is, a swindler is a swindler is um someone who um i'm trying to think how can i how can i say this a swindle swindle a swindler is someone who uses deception to deprive someone of money or possessions 